Welcome to Equosity, the podcast about all things equine, with a special emphasis on the horse-human bond. My name is Alexander Kurland. I'm the author of The Click That Teaches, a step-by-step guide in pictures, and many other books and DVDs on clicker training. And I'm joined by Dominique Day, one of the co-founders of Cavalia. This is part three of our conversation with Kyle Hetzel. Kyle is a zookeeper. He used to work with big cats and sea lions, giraffes, and wolves, and some other really cool wild animals. But he's currently working in the children's zoo section of a large West Coast zoo. Kyle wants to bring what he's been learning from the wild animals to the handling of domestic animals. So in part one, Kyle introduced us to some of the exotic animals who were his early teachers. Then in part two, we shifted the conversation to barnyard animals. That included goats, mini horses, and a very large steer named Slider. As we continue on with this conversation, the focus is very much on cooperative care. Of us who have relationships with horses, especially during shedding season, have had that experience of the horse saying, you know, I've got an itchy spot here. I've got an itchy spot here. And where we laugh and we start, you know, scratching their rear end because the horse has just turned around to us. And, and it's part of the pleasure of the relationship. So it's what you, Kyle, were describing earlier with the giraffe who's saying, I want this brush and I want this part of my body groomed. And, and I'd like it with this member of the staff, if you don't mind. I think it's, it's recognizing that there is more to the conversation than simply, I have achieved, in quotes, good manners. So, you know, the first approximation in, in the clicker training was we had to demonstrate that with positive reinforcement, we could train our horses to be acceptable, to be polite, and to, to show at least comparable safe ground manners to horses that were trained in force-based training. Because if, yes, I can get my horse to do all these cool things, but he won't stand still to be groomed, then all of the conventional trainers are going to be saying, well, forget this nonsense. Mm. I don't want this. So we had to be able to show that we could use positive reinforcement to teach our horses to stand still while we groomed them, saddled them, picked out their feet, et cetera, et cetera. But that's not a very high bar to reach for, you know. And and Kyle, you're really showing us, and with the zoo work, really that inspiring us to say, well, there's an even higher bar that we can reach for. You know, all this cooperative care of having an animal that is resting its chin in your hand and accepting eye drops. When I think of how aversive I personally find I know. anything to do with that kind of manipulation of my eyes, it's like, no, thank you. But that there is that cooperative care, that there is that two-way conversation. And that when you're grooming, it is very possible for your animal to begin to say, you know, within this context of polite good manners, could you could you just could you just go a little deeper on my shoulder because I've got an itch and that they can begin 
to engage you in that conversation. And we can acknowledge that that conversation exists and we can reach for it. You know, I always remember, Alex, once you told something to me and I thought, oh, that's so true, that we're now uh, at a point where we're allowing animals to change our behavior. Yes. Which was not an option before. I mean, changing your behavior for your animal was considered like, I don't know, a weakness, a non-option. Um, but now we're, we're thinking, yes, they can change our behavior. Yeah, in big and little ways. That we can take the goat in his crate to the children's playground and say, would you like to go for a walk? And the goat says, mm, not today. And you don't drag the goat out and say, but I came here for a walk. We are going to walk. It is truly a conversation in which we are listening to our partner. And boy, does that have ripple effects back into how we need to be with members of our own species. You know, I kind of want to circle back to when you're talking about agency and how and what that means to me as an individual. You know, like you said, yeah. many people have different conditions. But early on, Lisa taught me that is not your behavior. You are training that behavior. That behavior belongs to that animal. And that animal has all of the say within that behavior. And so ever since then, I've operated under the sense of that the animal gets to dictate every part of that behavior, where it gets presented, the level that they want to present it, the reinforcement that is worth that behavior. And it's, and to me, that's my working definition of what agency is, is that that animal owns that behavior and can dictate that behavior to their level, you know, that Maggie's eye drops were very different from Wyatt's eye drops and that Maggie's eye drop behavior built numerous other behaviors because she owned the fact that she could rest her head in our hands and that that allowed us to be able to do things advanced from the eye drops to a voluntary injection to be able to receive medication to it advanced for Maggie to the point where she was getting a tumor in her whisker pad and that we had to freeze the tumor off of her face. And because of her age and because of the risk that sea lions had going under anesthesia, we had to be able to train for a cooperation of having that tumor taken off of her face. And that that behavior was very unique and specific to, to Maggie. And that that behavior was very specific to who she wanted to present it to and who the vet was that did it and all those things. So in, in my working definition in this field at this moment, and again, it can change, like you're saying, Dominique, that like an animal can change my behavior within theirs, that right. each animal owns the behavior that we train, but it is still theirs. So it is not my responsibility that only I can ask that certain behavior. I want to be able to pass, you know, Slider's hoof care off to, to Elise, who plays another role in Slider's hoof care. You know, she's our communicator. She's the person who is at the foot with Amy, who can communicate with me like, good, he's sinking in, he's relaxing, his heart rate's dropping you know, feet higher, feet lower because slider is short and wide. And if I lean over to try and look around him, I throw the whole behavior off. But to me, I want slider to be able to have the agency to say, I will have Elise be able to feed me in this behavior. And that Kyle yeah. now go to his, to my feet and I can be comfortable with that shift in the picture, but it is going to be slider's decision to make based on the agency within his whole life care. And that to me is 
is exactly what you guys are saying that the agency is is belonging to the animal the animal owning their behavior to operate within our world right and that we are willing and able to read it acknowledge it and adjust our behavior accordingly i had a perfect example of that this morning we're having a it's a rainy day and i was doing not finish the barn chores and normally when i'm finished with the barn chores that's the time that i play with robin for a little bit and he's been enjoying the morning sessions now that the weather is i should rephrase that I've been enjoying the morning sessions more now that the weather is warmer because my hands are not frozen. But which also means that he's enjoying them more because we can do more. But uh, this morning as I walked and, and I've been doing some work in hand recently, which means putting a halter on him. And this morning as I walked over to and put my hand on the halter, Robin saw me, came away from the hay net, gave us a little chortle and without stopping at the halter, went straight into the arena. So I take that as a sign that, yes, I would like to play. So, <laughs> so I went into the arena carrying the halter and Robin went a little deeper into the arena. And so I held the halter out to him. He, uh, and, and we were fairly close at that point. And I held the halter out and he shook his head and turned away from me. Okay, we don't want to play with the halter today. Fine. So I set the halter down and we went on and had a really grand liberty session. It felt very satisfying to me. I got, uh, I had a lovely time with him. We got some productive things done. And for whatever reason today, and I think it's related to the weather, he did not want a halter on. So he made his wishes clear to me and I responded and shifted accordingly. And that's what the training is really, that's, that to me is part of agency. Mm. Yeah. Well, we know too, control is a primary reinforcer. Yeah. You've heard that many times. And I think that when we use it, we get great results. Yeah, definitely. When the animal knows they have control, they, it makes such a big difference. They understand that um, and they love it. And that's, that is so empowering to me in those moments that you've had in those sessions where, you know, like you talk about with Robin, that he clearly said no. And you can't help but feel empowered to know that like, it's a little Dr. Doolittle-y that you just had that conversation with him. And he said, no, and you're like, all right, that's fine. We can proceed. And that, that, that to me is what, kind of keeps advancing the field is when more and more trainers can have those conversations and the animals say no, but still want to participate in more is what, what I think is going to continue to drive this movement and this progression in animal care forward is the more, the more our animals say no, the further we're going to go. Yeah. And that, that no evolves through the shaping process. Because if, you know, if he said no by uh, kicking out at me or biting at me, his no would be expressed in an unacceptable way, <laughs> you know, uh, in an unsafe way. But his ability to say no has evolved beautifully through the shaping process. And, and I don't have to take it personally. He wasn't saying no to me. He wasn't saying no to 
interacting with me. He was just for today making his wishes known in terms of the form that the interaction wanted to take. And what he really wanted to do today was trot, which was great fun. So we had some lovely, just really fun trotting sets. And so, so we both gained from it. We both gained from his having in his vocabulary and his repertoire a way of expressing his wishes and his desires. And he has a broad enough repertoire that that's easy for him to do and it's easy for me to follow. Yeah. Yeah, it was, I, I had one recently with uh, Siesta the Gotland Pony, who is uh, 21 years old and she has Cushing's. And one of the first projects I was assigned when I came to my current facility was training her for a cooperative blood draw, you know, a voluntary blood draw, restraint-free, no sedatives needed. And Alex, you've helped me a lot being able to refine this behavior over the, the time that I've been where I'm at. And we all, we could practice, you know, hundred times and it's perfect and it looks good and we think we're ready to go and the, and the behavior is ready and she's ready. She knows what we're asking. We practice with a dull needle. We practice with a paper clip. We practice with number of objects and it would come time for the actual real blood draw on the stick and she would pull away. Um, so the way that the behavior looks is there's a, a giant oversized tennis ball. If any of you guys have been to a pet store, you might've seen like they're, they're massive 16 inch tennis balls on a stick. And what Siesta does is she comes into her stall and she places her forehead on the tennis ball. And the tennis ball is a way to begin the touching process for her so that if she touches her head to the tennis ball, the vet or the vet tech will cue touch and they can proceed to touch anywhere on her body and she will get reinforced for that. If she comes off of the tennis ball, the behavior stops. Uh, the person removes their hands. She returns to the tennis ball. She gets reinforced um, again for no hands being on her. The session doesn't end. It continues at her rate of comfort. And so we've been working very diligently at this behavior for close to a year and a half of getting her ready for this actual blood drop. And it finally came time where we said, well, you know, it, the, the one part that she seems to always react to is the actual sticking. So we, we practiced with a numbing cream to get a, a patch that held the numbing cream for an hour on there to see if it would make a difference. And it seemed to actually help. And the, the next approximate we made was using an insulin needle and practicing with an insulin needle, the actual poke. And sure enough, we practiced the insulin needle. The whole process was perfect. She held, she never moved. There was no reaction within her eyes, her ears. She stayed calm. And we all kind of looked at each other like, what just happened? What, what just changed? And we realized the, the needle size was a big change. So we told the vet about the change that, you know, the, the smaller needle size makes a difference. She's more comfortable. She will hold and we can progress. And they admitted like, okay, well, we can try a smaller needle, but we don't think it'll be successful. So it came day of, the vet came down after practicing for months with us, showing up to every single session. And we were ready. The vet went to poke and Siesta pulled her head away. And she pulled her head away and vet moved away. And so we all said, okay, well, what's the next step? And sure enough, Siesta returns, puts her head on the tennis ball, and we return. The vet cued touch. She held and put the needle in, and she held perfectly. We were able to pull 
five vials of blood from that blood draw after such a long time. And it was a moment after the session that I kind of had a mini breakdown because it looked as though Siesta was making the decision to stay, knowing that today was the day of the Pope and today was the day of the needle and the blood draw that she came back under the tennis ball and held beautifully as if she's known exactly what was expected of her the entire time. And it, it, it just, it created that buy-in effect with the vet to see that conscious choice because like many people have faced when they're bringing clicker training into their barn that this isn't going to work. They just want the food. They're not paying attention. You're not really doing anything, but to see that moment for the vet to, to, to see Siesta making the choice to come back, to hold calmly, to hold perfectly and understand the entire sequence of events that have been practiced was powerful on a, a numerous amount of levels because of Siesta making that choice and Siesta right. having the ability to say, I know what's coming next. I know the process and what will follow and I'm okay with it. I'm going to be here for it. I'm going to get reinforced for it and I'm accepting of it. And it was just, it was very, very cool to be a part of that. You know, when you hear that, you just feel like there's so much more we have to learn. Yeah. We're just beginning. Absolutely. Yeah. You know, yeah, for, for them, for them to, to be willing to make that choice, knowing what's coming. I mean, it's just, you want to dive into that and understand that yeah. more and more. And was that with the full size needle or still with the small needle? That was the neck size up from the insulin syringe that the vet was comfortable with. And it actually spurred us to have a conversation about, well, what is the, the bias that plays into vets believing that a smaller or a larger needle is necessi- as a necessity for a blood draw? Mm-hmm. Because there, there seems to be a bias among vets that, well, we want the biggest needle for the fastest results because the animal won't hold still. Well, if given any one of us the opportunity to say, well, I have to take blood from you. I can do it in two seconds with a massive needle, or I can do it in 20 seconds with a smaller needle. Small needle, please. Yeah. So how are the conversations not? Yeah, because once it's in, there's no, that's it. That's it's the going in. It's the breaking the skin. Exactly. So at that point, there was a little bit of that like light bulb that went off in his head that said, okay, maybe this information that I've been working under may not be correct and may, may have room to learn and to grow from as well. And so now there's a larger conversation that's happening amongst us about, well, now with our giraffe, we're doing that exact process. We're starting with the smallest needle and working up to the needle that is the smallest that we can get the results we need to with them. And giraffe's hides are incredibly thick. They're incredibly tough. If you uh, you know, YouTube, any giraffe against the lion, you see most lions just slide right off their skin. Their, their hides are so incredibly tough and thick. So being able to have a giraffe, you know, tolerate a blood draw, you do have to have a heavier gauge needle, but what is that gauge actually look like? And, you know, oftentimes, you know, you need to, to think, well, is there preparing for that stick about what, does the literature say, but what does our learner say? Is our learner saying that they're more comfortable with, you know, a smaller needle and will hold longer for you to fill whatever you need to fill versus trying to do more with a bigger needle? So it was, it, like I said, it was a, a powerful moment across the board for all those involved 
because he had been practicing for so long with us and had felt, you know, a lot of the behavior picture change. You know, he learned at the previous blood draw that the video showed Siesta was holding still, but as soon as he took his hands off to fix the needle, she pulled away. And so he realized like, oh, Siesta did her job. Siesta did the behavior. I changed the behavior on my end. She maintained. And so what that actually did was instead of the following procedure to be her having to put under a standing sedation for the blood draw, the vet goes, no, that's on me. The behavior is clearly ready and done. And that I need to refine my behavior and my practice within this animal's learning picture to change. And so he started asking, well, you know, this, this session, I'd like to practice, you know, wrinkling the tubes and the sound of the plastic tubes in my hand so that she's used to that noise. Or what do you think about if I like jingle my keys a little bit because I have to like reach for something in my pocket. And so he started actually adding to the training picture because he understood all these little nuances that he took for granted. Wow. Vital responses on the animal's part that if he had been practicing one of the other steps that we had was we had him practicing with a little plastic caddy with all of his little blood kit things that he needed in there. And then on the day of, he comes down, we're like, where's your caddy? He goes, well, I just keep everything in my pockets <laughs> for the past two months. We've been practicing with your little blue caddy and now it's nowhere to be found. He goes, so I really need the caddy. Yes. You really need the caddy to be with you because that's what CS is used to seeing you pull things out of. And the things you pull out of the caddy are things that she is understanding. She knows what they feel like. She knows what the blunt needle feels like coming out of the caddy. She knows what the marker feels like coming out of there. You pull something out of your pocket. She doesn't know if that's going to be the worst feeling pain wow. she's ever felt, but things coming out of the caddy, she's very well aware of. That's an example of change in the environment. Exactly. Yeah. And the predictability so important there. And it wow. was something that you can't, you know, necessarily teach him about the training window, just like there's obviously numerous medical things that we will never understand. But him being a part of that training team created that agency for him and created his buy-in to know that he has to own his behavior within that picture. And so it's it's fostered a very, very wonderful relationship with our vet now in our training picture. And he he knows full well that if he tells me I can't do something, that there's going to be new behaviors coming out left and right. <laughs> I asked him with a, a prairie dog that I'm working with that we need x-rays um, of his feet because he was showing some arthritic processes in his shoulder and his feet. And I said, okay, what do I need to do for an x-ray? And he goes, so just let me finish my sentence before you challenge it. He goes, I don't <laughs> sit still long enough for an x-ray. I said, how still does he have to sit? And he goes, okay how about we just learn to look at his feet instead of having to x-ray his feet? I was like, okay, I can do that. And so rather than having to pick up and manhandle this prairie dog to do an exam on his feet, we created a little tube with a PVC covering and then a plexi shield. Yep. So you can actually see into it. So the prairie dog will actually jump into the tube. We can close the end. He can get his peanuts through the one end and we can slowly rotate it so that his feet are on the bottom part of the plexi and we can actually examine all of his feet without having to restrain, you know, this two pound prairie dog, even though it'd be very easy just to pick him up and hold him in your hands that he learned that, you know, again, he had years of experience with prairie dogs. He talks about, you know, the different prairie dog bites that he had, and he doesn't have sensation as part of his thumb because of it. But to see that, like, even though diagnostically we wanted x-rays, we could actually see the wear on his feet to be able to measure 
where the different arthritic processes in his body would be all through training him to go into this little tiny PVC tube. And, and so, yeah, it's having those conversations and having those people a part of your training teams really can make a huge difference with a lot of our learners. And being creative enough in your thinking to say, this is how we've always done it, but that doesn't mean we always have to do it that way. We can do it a different way. You know, that that's, a, that's the challenge of it. That, yeah, you're never going to be able to get the prairie dog to hold its paws still if you've grabbed it and think of, you know, you know, I'm, I'm in a panic and everybody, part of me is trying to get away from you. You know, how fast can you see that prairie dog's feet? Not fast enough, but put him in a tunnel. Prairie dogs are, of course, he's going to be relaxed in a tunnel. They're tunneling animals. Feed him peanuts. He's going to be a happy tunneling animal and you'll be able to see his feet. Very, very simple, very clever. Yeah. So it's little, little things like that. He's kind of learned that, like, just give me a little leeway to try and get creative with the process. And it's, it's been really, really helpful to see that relationship blossom and how he started having different conversations with different keepers around the view about what's possible for each animal under his care. And, and to be a vet at a zoo is a tremendous feat in itself, but to then start to open yourself up to learn how behaviorally we can help him accomplish all of his goals. And we have an ongoing, you know, wish list with our vet techs for what they want to see our animals be capable of and be cooperative with. Such is, as? Is, such as uh, an eye exam on a giraffe. Um, so being able to uh, have a giraffe drop their head down low enough to be able to have the vet techs look at their eyes. We have uh, San Clemente goats, which are a little bit not as domesticated as the rest of the goats. And they have really, really large curled back horns. And so rather than doing free contact voluntary injections, we did a modified protected contact where the injection platforms, their stations were actually next to the fence. And it was next to actually where the public side of the pathway is. And the vet techs could actually, the goat would come up onto the platforms next to where the vet techs were. We would cue touch and the goat would actually be quartering away from the trainer and have their hip closest to the vet tech so that they could do their vaccines completely, again, restraint-free, but also safe enough away from the horns, or if the goat did react to turn back to where the vet tech was, they were going to be safe. But it was also a great demonstration for the public to see us being able to administer vaccines under a restraint-free condition. And, you know, anybody that has had to take a dog to a vet or a cat and seen a vet be able to do something like that was, it was a cool experience for everybody to see how cooperative these goats who, who have a label as feral so not even domestic, right. but feral goats cooperate within a very invasive procedure like that. So they, yeah. they felt safer. They felt, you know, like the, the vet techs had more say. And anytime that we write a training plan with the medical approach, we're sending it to the vet techs so that they see every step of the way, what our thinking is and how we're working through the behavior. So at any point they can interject and say, well, like, well, no, this step would work better here. Or, you know, I'd like to start to be in this picture. And so right do you now, write all your training plans? I do. It is a, a, a challenge for me to articulate and verbalize my training plans on paper. I'm terrible with punctuation. And so writing my training plans is very, very challenging for me. But it's been a very helpful tool for other people around the zoo to be able to be successful with different training plans, but also for other people to kind of see how our brains as trainers work. Has uh, it changed? how you train the fact that you're writing it down 
do you think? Yes and no, because there are certain times where I, I make a training decision knowing that decision. But then when I go to write out the training plan, it's like two paragraphs longer as to now explaining why that step was made. So for example, with sliders hoof care, I had to elaborate on step one, which was asking him to station and step off with his front two feet and then stepping back on the station and stepping off with his back two feet. And I did that because of what we talked about with Alex at science camp in balance and to teach him how to balance and front load his weight. So when we're working on a back foot, he knows how to be able to lean forward and what that sensation feels like and how I can actually read that in his body. So I had to, you know, go into that training plan and then elaborate the entire step out why it was that I decided that even though stationing criteria is all four feet on the platform, that for this criteria was maintained because of the step of teaching him to off weight and to balance. So it's, it has been a challenge for me to be able to do that. But as a member of AZA, they need to have behavior plans on every behavior training. So every single behavior that you would see an animal do, you should be able to ask, can I see that behavior plan? And I can send it to another institution or facility so that they could see exactly what we did. And, how and do it. you write in those plans what you do if things don't go according to plan? Do you have like um, a tree or how far yep. do you go? It, so a lot of the times, especially with animals that like, if you're working on pre-contact or an invasive behavior, you definitely have that in like your safety section about you know, curator approval for who can work this behavior and uh, safety checkpoints along the way. And one of the things that we're always big about is at any point in time in a, a training session, anybody who is involved, whether it's the observer or feeder trainer, that if they feel unsafe or at any point, they, the session stops and everybody steps out. And so in those training plans, we usually have little checkpoints to be able to measure those steps along the way. And it is important that, like you said, for the injection plan, if the goat steps off the platform, the goat is not wrong. It is the trainer's responsibility to make an approximation to allow the goat to be successful in maintaining that criteria. So the goat is not incorrect for coming off the platform. It is on the trainer's ability to create the approximation that will make that goat understand what is being asked of them. Um, so there are a lot of sections in there that if, you know, like you said, something doesn't go right, but there is always a safety briefing, like before slider sessions, you know, he's a thousand pound steer that we understand everybody's role. There's a communication, especially if we're doing uh, stranger danger. So being able to introduce a novel person into sliders training picture contact that they understand each person's role in the picture and that if he is this role he looks to this person and that ultimately the person who is at the head of the animal has the ultimate say so if i say everybody needs to get out then everybody needs to get out nobody questions nobody says one more or hold on it is left to that person so all those things are are detailed and described in every training plan so that there really isn't a question when things do go awry or that you don't do a brainstorming while the steer is not comfortable. <laughs> exactly. Yes. Uh, we have a, a particular giraffe who is, she loves food. I will say that she loves food. She is a garbage disposal when it comes to food. And so if you try to change up her training picture, she gets very confused. And when you have a really large animal like that, 
it is very crystal clear that there are certain paths and boundaries that are off limits that you always have those safety briefings on. You know, when we're talking about hoof trimmings on giraffe, you know, Alex asked about, you know, rear, rear feet. How do you trim a giraffe's back foot? Safety is the utmost concern because a single kick from a giraffe will kill a lion. And putting your hand and face near a foot is incredibly risky. So with the back foot, it's, it's merely a curl onto, you know, either a foam roller, rolled up towel, but their, their kicks are lethal. So you want to be able to line that animal up to be safe and comfortable and to absolutely be aware of your surroundings. And, you know, usually when, what would be a three person thing, you might have a fourth person, you know, 30 feet back watching for incoming golf carts or a screaming kid, or if it's Halloween, a person who's a jellyfish and has an iridescent <laughs> umbrella. Yeah. So safety is absolutely folded into those training plans at all times to make sure that everything is crystal clear. And so right now with our donkeys, our miniature donkeys, we're working on their vaccine process to be a moving one. So while we're walking, being able to cue touch and administering the vaccine while the animal is moving. And so what the safety steps look like and having the vet techs be comfortable with each of those safety steps. What we found with the donkeys is most donkeys instincts when they're afraid is usually to freeze out. And so it's a really hard way to be able to measure their behavior in an, an injection process. Are they frozen because they're comfortable? Are they frozen because they're afraid? What, why, what's happening when you don't okay. have a lot of to cue your behavior? So, so that's why you want to inject while they're moving. But how do you do that? You just so that actually, <laughs> you it, follow them while the needle is inside. So what we did was that was an idea that was presented to us by one of our vet techs. And she said, you know, I had to do it once. And we said, OK, well, what does that picture look like? And so what we discussed is basically measuring out into the syringe how much vaccine would be lost in a butterfly line. So the injection that usually has the long, like the, what looks like an IV line for what most people would assume. It's a shorter, smaller needle that has little green tabs. It's a smaller engage, and it could just go right underneath the skin. And then you have a nice little extension set, usually about a foot long. And so we would cue touch and we're measuring face movement, ears, and how they're walking with us. So if the donkey stops, if the donkey accelerates or you know, any change in behavior is, is their opt out for that behavior. But we initiate everything by asking the donkey to put two feet up onto a station. The vet tech is on one side, we're on the other side, and then we ask for a let's go. So asking the animal to heal with us off halter, and we walk around and ask for touches and reinforce. So what that would look like is the butterfly needle, we would cue touch, they would uh, inject with the butterfly needle, and then they would start to give the vaccine and any vaccine that's left in the line would then be flushed out with saline. So our vet techs are measuring out how much saline would need to be flushed into the line to make sure that the animal gets the entire vaccine is what we're working on right now because we just found that asking them any other injection behavior stationarily, we weren't able to measure their comfort and their ability to have that cooperation. So we wanted to do something that we knew they moved well with us, they heal really well with us, and using that as a part of their vaccination protocol. Are you the only people doing that? I've, I've never heard this. This is pretty creative. It's, I, I mean, like you've heard, we'll, we'll get creative with just about anything we have. There, there really isn't a, a wrong 
answer as long as we can fall within a safety and cooperative care guidelines. So yeah, I, I haven't heard of many, but um, doesn't mean it's not being done. Hmm. So two questions. So when you when you write out your training plan, and then you go out to your animal, and the animal says that training plan doesn't make sense to me, how do you keep yourself from getting stuck on I have to follow the training plan because it's that's what's written down on the in stone, as it were. So how do you train both yourself and uh, the keepers, the other handlers that you're working with to maintain a level of flexibility within a training plan? How is that written into a training plan? A lot of the times we, we will kind of mess with the beginnings of an idea of a behavior. We'll play around with what we think will work. And then we go to the drawing board, we write it out, we send it up to our curator, to the director of training and enrichment for them to kind of use, you know, their years of experience and resources to kind of look it over and say, yes, no, maybe can we tweak this. What do you think about this? Or I've seen this done this way. And then we get back at it. And like you said, if it all kind of is shot, that's okay. You, you have that behavior flexibility as long as you're operating within a safe procedure to kind of proceed as your learner is showing you. And then you will go back and adjust the training plan that was approved with the steps. You know, you can either put a note that, you know, mini donkey Pablo did this at this step, mini donkey Luna did this at this step. Or like with our goats at the bottom with the hoof trim, we have listed out how each goat prefers their continuous reinforcement. Okay. So it's in the plan that, you know, if, like I said, I send it to another zoo, they can look and see, okay, well, I've now have four different ways or five different ways to be able to offer continuous reinforcement. And, you know, their goat may prefer molasses in a syringe, but to see like that creative process was a part of it and that the continuous reinforcement was selective independent on each animal is hopefully just a starting point or, you know, a springboard into kind of evolving the behavior as it goes. And, you know, like the, the stationing stuff has, has just really kind of taken off with a lot of our learners that the different elevation plays a really, really big part. You know, some of them prefer the mats, some of them prefer higher elevations. And we really had to play around with, you know, there isn't a universal station. You know, the height of the keeper, we have one San Clemente goat that is six inches taller and his trainer is, you know, exponentially taller as well. And if we put him on the elevated platform with his goat, that goat's horns are at eye level with the vet tech. So, you know, all those things then get listed in to the training plan that like, okay, this little tweak is getting made here. It's so interesting to hear this because as we're recording this, I'm about uh, another day or two, I'm going to be starting uh, one of the virtual clinics and it's, this one is on getting started. So helping people to, in those first few steps of getting started with their horse. And, you know, it's, there's so much in just those first few basic steps. And one of the most important pieces of that is this understanding that, yes, there is a progression that we're following, but within that progression, it's always a study of one. It's not a recipe. It's not a recipe. And if you try and, and go through it like it's a recipe, you'll probably run into difficulties because your horse is going to want the carrots chopped up in tiny little pieces 
And this other horse, if you did that, you're going to get a biting monster. He needs big pieces. And, and all of these details, the devil's definitely in the details. All of these details matter. And so for you to say things like, there are four or five different ways that we've put down on this training plan that you can do continuous feeding. And it isn't, there are only four or five ways. Pick one of them and hope. It's, <laughs> here are four or five ways that we've developed. And what this is telling you is be creative and find the way that your individual enjoys and, and understands. That's the message. Absolutely. So, so Dominique, if we were to if we were to come up with a challenge for Kyle, you know, what are what would be something that what a common, fairly common thing that in the husbandry world that we need to do with our horses that we as horse people might either not even think to ask of our horses or be stuck in a rut in terms of how it's done. So, well, you know, he certainly has a lot of experience in the trimming. And I think I hear a lot of questions about back foot, not even just not just trimming, cleaning. You know, I hear people um, I read on groups, people find that the back feet, which is a very common thing, you have to clean the forefeet uh, regularly. And people have issues with their horses with the back feet because the horses, uh, they, uh, they, they don't want to, they, there's no duration or they, what's the word you use in English when, when the horses are, they kick um, out, they kick, they kick out yeah. um, or, or they lift very quickly. And um, I mean, they don't want to give you their feet. So, okay, Kyle. So people so, are grabbing, are yeah. grabbing the feet and they're being told, don't let go of the back of the feet because, you know, you'll teach him to, um, to take the feet away. Yeah. Or even people are doing positive reinforcement and they're not, um, they're not getting where they want to be. So you, you described the process a bit with the goats, but now we've got a different species. It's a horse. So... It's a horse with one person. There's not three, four people, not someone feeding in the front. This person is taking their horse from the paddock every day. They want to feed. They want to clean their all four feet, and they're having issues with the back feet. Okay, so first of all, let's change that scenario because okay. this could be, there's no reason why for foot cleaning, you could not set up a camera and enlist the help of an internet friend. So you could create yes. a team. So let's let's start there that. So Kyle in in providing assistance, you could if you wanted to create a training plan where this person developed an internet team using cameras that that's within the realm of possibility. But what would you suggest for this person as a starting point? So I I laugh because I feel like I'm at a very unfair advantage to this challenge. Um, <laughs> <laughs> One of my co-trainers, Elise, that I work with, had a geriatric quarter horse that wasn't able to do that behavior. He wasn't able to stand up and allow those back feet to be, you know, trimmed and clipped and cleaned out. And so similar to what you talked about earlier, Alex, is 
you guys are looking for a really big behavior, right? You're looking for that foot to get lifted up and held into your hand so that you can go through and clip. But what if we yep. broke it down to a really small step and you just got the flexion of the, the hoof just raising a little bit and you could just take that and get them to just roll just a tiny bit up. So, you know, most horses will naturally rest that way when they're, they're off waiting that ever slight flexion of just the, the, the tip of their hoof touching the ground. Cause in reality, that's all you truly would need to be able to clean and to look yep. at their feet. And so to just take that very, very small of a level and break it down so that you could build duration on presenting that foot and leaving that foot so that you can clean and then go up, reinforce, whether you want to do it in a bucket to kind of keep your reinforcement sizes in a tight little spot, or if you want to have a smaller one in the corner, but figure out how your horse will best wait. And hopefully, you know, you can see on the camera or your, your training buddy on camera can tell you how the horse is off waiting when you're in that back foot, or if you cleaning the foot a certain way changes how that horse is looking will make a difference later on. So the beginning of the training plan would be um, capturing the rolling of the, that back foot. Um, so subtly shifting your weight so that horse might anticipate a forward step and being able to take that little by little and then eventually maintaining duration on that hoof, you know, curl up so that you could work your way back and forth to full cleaning. Yep. That would be my suggestion is a, a taking when you have such a, a big feat that does pose such risk, knowing that you could take something smaller instead of something bigger and just, you know, starting at the point of just a weight shift, you know, shifting a little bit here and there, you know, teaching your horse to be able to mimic you. Uh, we have giraffe that actually will mimic trainers. You know, when a trainer shifts their weight a little bit to the left, the giraffe shifts their weight to their, to their right. And so I feel like you could do the same thing with your, your horse and getting them to learn how to be able to shift their weight back and forth to get that, that little roll up for their back feet. So that would be a really neat prerequisite skill, which would also then be a really great building block for lots of other behaviors. So in terms of the constructional training approach, it's just, that would be really fun. And that's really, when you find something like that, that's when you know you've got a really juicy bit because you see, you know, yeah, I trained this because I want to pick out his feet, but oh my goodness, look at all the places where that same behavior is going to be useful. Like what? Give us some examples. Well, any of the leading, you know, if you shift your, you know, I shift my weight a little bit, you shift with it. Under saddle, when you start, you can do some really fun little shifts and the horse will actually end up, without taking a, a step, will end up swaying. And you can get them to sway forward and back and side to side. It's a cool feel, but it is so good for their joints. So good for their joints. And I'm also picturing you know, with this process that when I'm doing the hind feet, I don't have to bend over to teach this. So one of the things that I like when I'm teaching the hind feet is to use uh, a shaping process that keeps my head up until I've established clearly that this horse is comfortable having his, his foot up and having his feet manipulated. So when, I, when you ask in the standard way where you're sliding down the horse's leg, you're bending over, you're putting your head down at a lower height. And if you've got a horse that's gonna kick out, you're putting yourself in a very vulnerable 
position. But you can teach all of this where you're standing up and you're just asking for that little weight shift, click treat, a little weight shift, click treat, horse cocks his foot. And, and then you could even use your own foot as an initial target of, can you keep your foot cocked while my foot, you know, while you feel the contact of my foot to your foot. So you're, you're doing a, a true foot target. Foot to foot. <laughs> And and that that precedes uh, being touched by your hand, so it's very very neat. All right, so that that was too easy. So what other common husbandry? I suppose paste warmers would be a uh, something that comes into a lot of horses' lives. So uh, any paste warmer, dose syringe, you know, medical. How would you go? Actually, it's and and it's even broader than that because. Well, there's there's the accepting of the dose syringe, but there's also just the we've we've handled the hind feet now, that whole handling of the of the head. So there are lots of reasons why we need to handle and be around the horse's head and have the horse comfortable. We may, may need eye exams. We might need to present a dose syringe. We might need to for haltering for you know so. Just the whole getting this animal so that they are cooperative, so that you're getting the cooperative care agency of I am bringing my head into your close proximity, into your personal space, where I know your hands are going to be coming up and doing things. Oh, boy. Um, So my first, first thought would be being able to create an environment that would be best suited for what your goal would be. So I wouldn't recommend like starting this behavior possibly in your arena, but if you could start the behavior in the stall where you can measure movements a little bit more precisely and being able to create an area where the horse understands and can initiate the head movement. So whether you can create, you know, a pad or a pillow for the horse to rest in and be able to capture and shape resting their head into uh, an object like a pillow or something where they, you can create a nice loop of behavior going into a head ready area. So whether it's, I need them to rest their head in here so I can apply medication to a wound or a lesion on their head or to do an eye exam, that creating a comfortable environment for them would be ideal. If it is, you know, creating the haltering or bringing my head into a space using novel objects like a hula hoop and getting them to be able to learn the piece to put their head into something and then yeah. maintain duration before, like you said, you know, don't jump to the halter right away. Start with something that has a very new and novel feeling to it and advance and progress that point to have them understand that this is a head specific game. Yeah. Um, and that there's opportunity to go elsewhere if you don't want that portion of it to be done. And that's why, like I said, I wouldn't start that behavior in an arena or in a very free moving environment, but an area where you can maintain still feet and create loops with just head movement to be able to advance head specific arrangements, as opposed to, you know, like Dominique said earlier, lumping a lot of stuff when they're doing more with more opportunities in their environment that you create very still controlled behavior with the head. And then, you know, having parts of your training picture to be consistent where you have your medicine kit or if it's a warming or if it's eye exam stuff that that is very clearly laid out that this is 
the portion of the head that we're working with today so that your queue actually becomes the suite of items that you will be using as opposed okay. to just it can be anything this day but you can give more of that agency with what you interchange out so the horse would put its head into you know like i said if i, I have like a cradle for a pillow and the horse rests its head in there and it sees uh, the flashlight, a cotton swab, and eye drop applicators. That now the suite of behaviors is centered around the eye. If it's ear stuff, you know, you may have an alcohol bottle or, you know, fly spray. You know, there, there could be a number of other suites that you can plug in that the horse understands that this is the very specific part that we're working towards today and adjust your suite of options that you have. That makes sense? Yes. And so if it were the mouth, you might not want them resting on the pillow because they couldn't open their mouth if you needed to look inside. So, so the, yeah. So with like the mouth, if it wanted to be an open mouth, I, for me personally, I might keep that because then I could only, then I'd only have to shape one part of the mouth moving so that the chin stays on the pillow and I just need the, the, the nose to move up and shaping the open mouth with the chin still, and then only the top part of the mouth comes, or top part of the jaw opens up. Okay. That would be my, my preference as a, um, and that I guess comes from sea lions where to ask for an open mouth, oftentimes you target with your hand. So you yes. hold their hand out open, palm down, they touch their nose to your hand, and then you take your thumb and you tap their, their bottom jaw with your thumb, and they will actually extend their mouth open however open you want it based on the flexion of your hand. So that the, the moving part is actually your thumb and the nose stays in contact with your hand. So you can adjust how open you want it to be. So if you want that really big sea line open mouth, you can open your hand all the way. So it's like a two-point target. One point is the tip of your fingers, let's say, and the other point is your thumb. And so they have to target both points, one with the upper lip, the other with the lower lip. Because yeah. I'm trying to, uh, we're, we're seeing each other now on Zoom, but for people who are listening to try to figure out what you're describing with your hands. Yep, exactly. And a lot, a lot of marine mammal training is being able to incorporate various targets and how you use them to be able to do different things. So yeah, exactly like you showed um, having your thumb come in contact with your middle finger and then extending it would actually be the cue for most sea lions to be able to open their mouth. Mm -hmm. Is that helpful or is that? Yeah, yeah, no, it's <laughs> wonderful. I can just see everyone listening to this going, never mind going to horse trainers. We've got to go find ourselves a zoo trainer. <laughs> <laughs> I, I think, you know, going back to what you said about, you know, where to start and understanding the study of one, going back to Maggie, the, the blind and deaf sea lion, the old girl, she, uh, because of her, her limitations and her ailments that she had, by textbook definition, when you're, when you're talking about positive reinforcement, you bridge at the apex of the behavior. That's the behavior you want to capture, right? So the horse jumps, you bridge at the highest point of the jump because that's the part you want to capture. You don't want to bridge when you land because then you're bridging landing. And so a discussion that we had in the Maggie training team was when you administer the eye drops, you should be bridging because that's, that's the behavior you're working on. And I said, well, I disagree because if I bridge at the apex of the behavior and you think about what the start of the loop is, Maggie orients with her nose to the sky and mouth open because for 30, 
three years, fish fell from the heavens to Maggie. So people, when they fed her, they would throw over a railing into her mouth. So she's adapted to life with head back, nose to the sky, mouth open. And so if she's resting her head in my hand and I administer the eye drops and I bridge, she is going to reset the loop to being able to come up and what actually hit my hand where the eye drops are and potentially eat eye drops, swallow the eye drops, you know, hit her eye on the eye drop applicator. And so we had the discussion of, well, with Maggie and how her behavior exists, it helps her to understand that the completion of the behavior means that you reset the loop so that she can lean back, open up and get the fish delivered to her instantaneously, as opposed to, you know, systematically you bridge at the apex of the behavior and it didn't work for that one particular individual and that one particular suite of behaviors. And it, it, it was a, an eye-opening moment for the training team to understand like, oh, well, even though that's what all the books say and that's what the experts will tell you, it doesn't make sense for this one animal in this one exact instance. I think that's the great challenge when you are starting out because if you're starting out and you have an animal that sits on the bell-shaped curve, you're golden because <laughs> you can follow what you know is written in the books. You can follow what the experts say and it will work. You know, it'll, it'll, it'll work pretty well for, for your individual and, and you'll, you'll have pretty clear sailing. But if you have a Maggie, you have to be more flexible and creative in how you interpret the principles and the science. And that it's what Ken Ramirez talks about in terms of what's the difference between a, a a novice and an advanced trainer. And the advanced trainer has the experience, the skill, the understanding of the rules to know when you bend the rules. And you're bending the rules still within the principles, but you're still bending the rules. (laughs) But a novice trainer will bend the rules till they break and get into trouble because they don't have enough grounding yet in, you know, just good basic sitting on the bell-shaped curve, middle of the bell-shaped curve training to know how to bend those rules for the good of the animal. Yeah, And that's, I think that's why I, I consistently love going to science camp because you, you see so much of the science and the art that is training that there is like you're saying, this flexibility and this grace that happens within the training picture that sometimes, you know, it you take those Skinner box principles and you take things that, you know, Gold Diamond says, but then you can add the artistic part of it to fit that situation and to fit that particular learner for what you need to make that beautiful yeah. picture kind of come alive. Yeah. And sometimes that beautiful picture is a shower curtain. And yes. <laughs> slowly but surely, those you, you're, you should invest in, you know, barn stall shower curtains. Yes. Um, and that's, that's what I love about it. And that, you know, you, you see, you get that, that hard concrete fact that you know will work and that is tried and true and proven, but then you see the, the beauty of how it can be applied and applicated in real time so wonderfully. And the application, I mean, the rules of the application evolve. And that's why I like going to science camp is because, you know, what was said and seemed like the golden rule uh, 20 years ago has evolved. 
I mean, you know, the basic principles are are there, but the application, I mean, it's always changing and evolving. So that's why we need to keep ourselves well educated. Yeah, because it's always, always go to people for opinions and our animals for answers. Yeah, so absolutely. So we may think that we have it all figured out, but at the end of the day, it's Maggie and all the other mm-hmm. Maggies of the world who get to say, this, this works for me. This is more complicated than that. <laughs> yeah, but, yeah. Or, or that this works for me, that, that I, can, I understand this and you've adjusted your learning cycle so that this works for me. It's very neat, very neat. Well, I think we have given people an enormous amount of food for thought. This has been a great, great conversation. But I'm also looking at the clock thinking, we've kept you for a very long time chatting away. And we've by no means, I mean, we've only just scratched the surface, but I've loved this conversation. I've really loved it. was great. You know, I'm always so impressed with how advanced and creative zoos are in terms of behavior and how it's applied with the animals. It's very inspiring. So thank you, Kyle. Thank you guys so much for having me. I I hope I didn't ramble and talk too much because I- No, you didn't. I love so much what I do and I'm so blessed and so privileged to have the position and the job and to have the platform to discuss these things and to share these incredible teachers that I have with you is, is, I hope honoring all of them the way that I hope it does. so thank you guys so much for having me. It's been a wonderful delight to talk with you guys about all this. I hope that I did justice to my teammates and to my animal ambassadors and my curator and my mentors to you know talk about all the things that we're doing because uh, it, it wasn't ever just me. It's it's a lot of people that that went into helping catalyze who I'm continuing to become. These podcasts are an enormous amount of work. But they're very much worth it when we can share conversations like this one with all of you. I hope you enjoyed it. And remember, if you want to learn more, do visit my website, theclickercenter.com. There you'll find a wealth of information. All the DVDs, the books, the online course, the stay-at-home clinics, and so much more. So enjoy, have fun with your horses, and we'll see you next time.